Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. Now, I know this isn't a book we go to very often, and if you have trouble finding it, it's after Titus and before Hebrews. It only takes up about one page in your Bible, maybe one and a half. It is one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that a couple of weeks ago, Ben introduced a new series that we're going to be doing on Sunday nights. The ministers are going to take turns presenting a lesson in the series we've called One and Done. Now that terminology, one and done, Ben mentioned, comes from college basketball. Because several years ago, the NBA instituted a rule that said all prospective players who wanted to enter the NBA draft would have to first spend a season in college basketball. And so several players will go into the college ranks as a student athlete for one year, complete their one year, and then go on to the NBA draft. That is their one-and-done year. And we're taking that, that philosophy, that principle, that concept, and putting a little spin on it. Because there are five books in our Bibles that are one-and-done. Five books that have a single chapter, and then they are done. Now, the authors of those books did not set out to do a one-chapter book. They wrote what they were intending to write, and we've assigned chapters to them. People have assigned chapters to them themselves. There's one book in the Old Testament and four books in the New Testament that are one and done. And tonight we look at, the, at another one of those books, not in any particular order, but tonight we look at the book of Philemon. The one, one and done letter of Paul. And just as we did a couple of weeks ago, I'd like to start by reading the entirety of the text. It's only 25 verses long, so it won't take us very long. Begin with me in Philemon chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and now, but now, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Philemon is an interesting book because, as one commentator said, reading it is like coming into the middle of a movie and having to catch up on who the characters are and what has already happened in the plot, and then having to leave before the end. You see, Paul doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know here. Paul does not tell us how it happened that Onesimus came into his, his influence long enough for him to lead him to Christ. Paul does not tell us why Onesimus is there with him and not back home with Philemon. Paul doesn't tell us precisely what he's asking Onesimus' master to do with him. There's so many unanswered questions in this text. From the letter, all we know for sure is that Onesimus is a slave who had been converted by Paul during Paul's confinement. We also learn that Onesimus had been useful to Paul and served him in some capacity, and that before, he was considered useless in some capacity to his owner and may have done him wrong in some way that would require some sort of repayment. And Paul sends Onesimus back in hopes that Philemon will receive him graciously as a brother in Christ. That's what we know. At least from the text, that's what we can decipher. So this is such a unique letter for so many reasons. But before we dive into the message of Philemon, let's consider some factors that we need to know. First, when you look at Philemon, you'll see that it was written by Paul from prison. There's a handful of letters Paul wrote that he wrote from behind bars, and this is one of them. You can see in Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, and verse uh, 3, and verse, or excuse me, verse 1, verse 9, and verse 23, that he refers to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And he references his imprisonment a couple of other times in verse 10 and verse 13. There are three other letters that usually get categorized with Philemon and called prison epistles. They're Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Those four letters, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, are typically referred to as the prison epistles because all four of them were written by Paul from behind bars. And the traditional view is that they're written from his house arrest in particular while he was in Rome a situation that's described for us in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. And so that means these letters were written sometime in the early 60s. 80, 60 to 62 is usually the date range given for them. But it means that the events that 
Paul is writing about, the, the communications he's sending, have a context of him in prison and have some corollaries to other letters that were written at the same time. In fact, that leads into the second thing we really need to know about Philemon, and that it is closely associated with the book of Colossians. See, Paul's letters to Philemon and to the church in Colossae were written at about the same time to people in the same city and were apparently delivered by the same courier. If you'll turn over to Colossians chapter 4, keep your spot there in Philemon because that's where we'll be returning to. But if you turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, gives us this description of what's going on with that letter. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we're told that Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Onesimus only gets mentioned in the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. And if you look at Philemon and you look at verses 10 through 16, where Onesimus is introduced to us in that letter, we learn that he's being sent back to Philemon, just as he's being sent to Colossae in Colossians chapter 4. As one commentator said, taken together, the evidence appears to indicate that Tychicus and Onesimus were sent together by Paul to Colossae with two letters, one addressed to the entire church and the other more specifically addressed to Philemon, a member of that church. And maybe not just any member, but according to the beginning of the book of Philemon, he may have been the one in whose house this church met. So there's a really close connection between Colossians and Philemon. And that will come into play as we study further into this lesson. A third thing you really ought to know about Philemon is that it's primarily a personal letter. Many of Paul's writings are written to congregations. The church in Philippi, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Colossae. All these congregations are receiving letters from Paul. But on this occasion, he's writing to an individual. Now, he's written to other individuals. Timothy and Titus will both get letters from Paul. But this one's unique. This one's written to a guy that is not um, a protege of Paul. This is written to a guy who's not specifically identified as someone who's serving in a ministerial capacity like Timothy and Titus. This is written to a guy who's simply the one in whose house the church meets. But it's not just written to Philemon. If you look at verse 2 of Philippians, you'll see that there are three individuals named. There's Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus. Now, Philemon is the primary recipient of the letter. That's why he's named first. Aphia is traditionally believed to be Philemon's wife. And many believe Archippus is their son. You'll also notice in verse 2 that the letter is addressed not only to those three individuals, but also to the church in their house. 
Although multiple people are designated as addressees, and although the church is included in the address of this letter, it becomes very apparent that the letter is meant specifically for Philemon. Because when you get to verse 4, you won't be able to see this in the English text. But that pronoun you, that second person pronoun you from verse 4 through verse 22 is singular, not plural. Meaning it's to one person. And that one person is the first person addressed. Philemon. This is primarily a personal letter from Paul to Philemon regarding an issue that they are addressing together. One final thing you really need to know about the book of Philemon is that it must be read against the backdrop of first century slavery. Now, Ben, uh, in a class recently here in the auditorium on Wednesday nights in his uh, to-be-continued class, he kind of talked about some of the differences between slavery in the first century and what has been experienced in our country in its history. There is some difference. The practice of slavery in Rome primarily involved people who of their own volition or by order of the courts indenture themselves to pay off debts. I mean, that's not the only way people ended up in slavery. People also did end up in slavery because they were captured, a foreign nation that was taken into captivity. And there is some evidence that piracy led to some people being taken captive and put into slavery. But the primary means, or the primary way people found themselves as slaves in the first century was to pay off debts. Very different from that which was experienced in the United States. Additionally, under Roman law, slaves were regarded as human beings, but not as legal persons. That means that they were recognized as people. They just didn't have legal privileges like marriage, inheritances, landowning, that sort of thing. And when you consider the fact that their, that their status exists because they're trying to pay off debt, some of that's understandable. And that's a far cry from the way slaves were treated in our own country where they weren't even recognized as human beings at times. And back in the first century, from what we know, slaves had more opportunity for social advancement and were able to work for and achieve freedom more frequently. You see, when we get to the book of Philemon and we look at verse 15 and 16, it becomes apparent that Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. And the most probable situation that we are looking at with this book is that Onesimus has run away from Philemon and by circumstances unbeknownst to us came in contact with Paul and after being converted by Paul, he is now returning to Philemon, but with Paul's letter requesting Philemon's cooperation in accepting Onesimus' return without consequence. 
with all that understanding as the background for this letter, what can we learn from it? Why, as one commentator pondered, why was such a short letter consisting of only 335 words, why was it preserved in our canon? Scholars have guessed that Paul wrote many personal notes like this, so why was this particular one saved? Especially since there's no grand theological teaching advanced in it. I simply want to pose two basic reasons or two basic teachings from this letter that make it so important to have in our canon. And the first of those teachings, I believe, is the primacy of Christian relationships. Philemon addresses the primacy of Christian relationships. As has already been noted, Philemon and Onesimus' relationship used to be that of master and slave. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Remember the book of Philemon, I keep trying to say Flamingo for some reason. I don't know why. The book of Philemon, see? <laughs> the book of Philemon is intricately connected to the book of Colossians. And I want you to think, the book of Colossians gets brought to the church in Colossae, the church that is apparently meeting in Philemon's house. And it's going to be read to the entire congregation. Tychicus and Onesimus are the deliverers of this letter to Colossae. And I want you to open up to the book of Colossians. I want you to notice what instructions Paul gives in the third chapter of Colossians, beginning at the 22nd verse, and it will spill over into the first verse of chapter 4. And I want you to imagine, imagine Philemon sitting there in the audience of the church, listening to these instructions being read, and looking across the room, at Onesimus. Beginning again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, the ESV says, slaves, other translations say, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Imagine what Philemon is thinking as he reads those things. Is he sitting there thinking, yeah, Onesimus, you should have done that. Yeah, Onesimus, you deserve to be punished. Yeah, Onesimus, I'm going to be fair with you. You're going to reap what you sowed. But then Onesimus hands him a different letter. The letter that we know as Philemon. And in that letter... Paul instructs Philemon to no longer view Onesimus as his slave, but as his brother. And to treat him 
according to that new relationship dynamic. And instead of punishing him for his wrongdoing, which Paul alluded to there in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 25, Paul instructed Philemon to charge any wrongdoing Onesimus had done to Paul's account. Paul says in the 18th verse of Philemon, hey, if Onesimus owes you anything, if he's done anything wrong, I'll take care of it. Besides, Paul will say, you owe me first. Paul has redefined the relationship that Philemon and Onesimus are to have. He says, slave and master are no longer who you are. You are brother and brother. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Paul makes it clear that all relationships pale in comparison to the relationship that exists in Christ. And he uses what for us is the worst relationship dynamic to show the best relationship dynamic. If Philemon and Onesimus can change the way they see their relationship, then every one of us in Christ can change the way we see our relationship. Husbands, do you look at your wife and only see your wife, or do you see your sister in Christ? And wives, do you look at your husbands and only see your husband, or do you see your brother in Christ? I think even in the marital dynamic, sometimes we forget that we're not just spouses. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes we don't apply the instructions that are given to us in God's Word regarding our spiritual family to our marriages. Sitting among us, are Christians of various backgrounds and various ideologies and various interests. And sometimes we let other labels dictate our relationships more than our identity as Christians. And what Paul is saying here is that no relationship you have, no title you wear, no label you're given matters in comparison to your identity as a child of God. You are first and foremost a child of God and therefore a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And that relationship should dictate all your relationships. How you treat each other in any and every situation should be determined by that relationship. And like I said, if Philemon, a master, and Onesimus, a slave, could wrap their minds around it, 
there's no reason you and I can't wrap ours. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus, speaking specifically to his disciples, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That commandment is new, not because we've never been instructed to love each other before, but because Jesus changed the standard. You see, prior to that statement, the love we see that we're called to in the Bible is to love each other the way we want to be loved. It's that golden rule standard. Love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, that standard. In John chapter 13, just after he washed the disciples' feet, and just shortly before he's going to be arrested and tried and killed, he says, there's a new way to love. You love the way that I loved you. He's saying that specifically to disciples, specifically to those who are in Christ together as a family. And he's saying the way you're going to love each other is the way I loved you. And how did Jesus love us? Unconditionally. Sacrificially. Completely. And now we're expected to reciprocate that love, not just to him, but to each other. And he goes on to say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says it's going to be our identification. It's going to be the way people know we're associated with him if we love each other the way he loved us. And that's exactly what Paul is calling Philemon to do with Onesimus. And that means that that relationship was going to necessitate the presence of forgiveness and mercy and love rather than bitterness, grudges, and hate. See, from the book of Philemon, we learn that getting relationships straight is just as important as getting doctrine straight. I can't claim that quote. That came from somebody else. Getting relationships straight is just as important as getting doctrine straight. That's one thing the book of Philemon teaches us. Philemon addresses the primacy of Christian relationships, but I think it also addresses something else that's so very important for us to wrap our minds around, but that we often avoid or ignore. And that is the fallacy of personal privacy in the church. We live in a culture that loves privacy. We want to keep all our stuff to ourselves. We even have laws passed to protect our privacy. Just this week I was at the doctor and had to sign a new HIPAA form that's protecting my medical privacy from your peering eyes. We love our privacy. But do you realize there's no promise of such privacy when it comes to spiritual matters? When we go back to, Philipp, to Philemon verse 2 and look at those addressees, remember it had Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, 
and the church that meets in their house. That fourth addressee was the entire congregation. You know what that means? The letter was going to be read to the whole church. Philemon's dirty laundry, so to speak, or Philemon's situation with Onesimus was about to be read to the whole congregation. And Paul's expectations for Philemon were about to be heard by his brothers in Christ and his sisters in Christ. And they're going to know what Paul said he should do with Onesimus. Do you know what that means? There's people in that church that were going to be able to hold Philemon accountable. This is not a new strategy for Paul. If you go back to the book of Philippians and to the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul speaks to these two ladies who are disagreeing with each other. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. But then he follows that instruction up by saying, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I ask you also, true companion. Who's the true companion here? It's the book of Philippians. It's not written to an individual. It's written to the church in Philippi. And so he's calling on the entire congregation in Philippi to help Euodia and Syntyche figure out their problem. He's holding those two ladies accountable by the rest of the congregation and asking the congregation to help them resolve their differences. It's the same principle that's happening with Onesimus. The whole congregation has been brought in on the relationship dynamic and the expectation of how that was going to change. And now, even if Paul never comes to visit, even if Paul dies the next day, people know what Onesimus and Philemon are supposed to do. Paul's appeal for the entire church to participate in this situation was his means of creating accountability. And you know what accountability does? It takes away our privacy. You are not promised privacy in the church. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, we are instructed to admonish one another. Do you know what admonish means? It means to warn, even to reprimand. It means to get on to somebody. That's a call for you to correct me when I err and for me to correct you when you err. It's the same basic premise that's presented in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 where uh, Paul calls for the ones who are spiritual to restore the ones who are caught in a transgression. It's that same idea. I correct you when you err. You correct me when I err. But you know the only way that works is if we know each other err. And that takes accountability. That takes honesty. That takes transparency. And that takes intimacy. There's another instruction that I think is even more challenging for us in the 21st century than anybody else. 
And it appears in one of the verses that's most easily quoted by us. It's James chapter 5 and verse 16. James chapter 5 and verse 16 instructs us to pray for one another. But before it says to pray for one another, do you know what it says? Confess your sins to one another. Now who wants to come engage in that practice with me right after this service? We'll gather in the fellowship hall. Lay it out all on the line. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just start a weekly activity. How's that sound? Every week, we'll get together and we'll tell each other our sins. How many are in? Raise your hand. I didn't think so. Because we love our privacy. We don't want people to know our flaws and our failures and our mistakes and all the horrible things that we do. We are quick to point out the power of prayer that's present in James chapter 5 and verse 16, but we are quick to ignore the expectation of confession that that passage instructs us to engage in. When James tells us to confess our sins to one another, he's calling on us to be transparent rather than private. And as long as I maintain my spiritual privacy then I never have to be accountable to you. And that's why many of us avoid confession and many of us avoid correction because we really just don't want to be accountable to anybody. But that's not the dynamic that the New Testament presents within the church. We're called to hold each other accountable we're called to have such intimate relationships that we rejoice with one another and we weep with one another. And the only way you can do that is if you know what's going on in each other's lives. Scripture calls on us to have such love for one another that we can be transparent and we can be intimate and we can be honest with each other. And when Paul includes the church in the address of this very personal letter, he's calling on the church to hold Philemon accountable and to hold Onesimus accountable. And I'll tell you this, if the church can start getting accountability right, it will do a lot of damage to the work of Satan. See, the book of Philemon is such an interesting book. It doesn't have the deep theology of Romans. It doesn't have the beautiful language of John. But what it does have is a very practical message about relationships in the church. A very practical message about true love in the church. Heard a story about a group that was conducting a play about the passion of Jesus. The closing scene was to, supposed to depict the ascension by having the actor who was playing Jesus attached to some cables and he would be lifted up into the rafters as he gave the Great Commission. And then he would disappear as if he had ascended into the sky. The only problem was that the guys backstage with the cables let them slip and the guy who was playing Jesus as he was halfway up started to come back down. 
And as he got closer and closer to the floor, he decided it was time to improvise. And so he, he said, oh, hey guys, one last thing. Remember to love one another. Now, he didn't get that improv line from some scene in Scripture, but he did get it from the teachings of Jesus. And if there were a teaching that Jesus gave that would be worth repeating before he left, it's that one. Because if we get that one right, everyone will know that he, we are his disciples. So when you look at Philemon and the unique situation he finds himself in with Onesimus, Remember the call to love that Scripture has given us. Remember that that call for love means that our relationship in Christ with one another is far more important, far more necessary, far more impactful than any other relationship we have. And let's remember that in the church, that kind of love means that we are transparent with each other and means that we are accountable to each other and means that we care for one another enough to correct and to confess. And this evening as we're gathered here and we're reminded of this beautiful message in such a small book, if you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come.